now it's pretty clear that, that a lot of it's in the markets. I suspect there's still a bit more kind of compression of earnings to come through, and that might weigh a bit on stock markets. But you know, by and large, you know, every man and his dog is talking about inflation, talking about rate rises, talking about housing. I was listening to the AFIRE podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. Every conference I'm going to over the last six weeks, right now it's uh, early November in 2022, it seems like every week we're getting more and more depressed. We're getting more and more accepting of the idea that our global economy and the markets, at the very least, are undergoing a, a, a severe challenge and one that's going to take a lot of thinking and perhaps some rejiggering of our strategies as we move forward. Um, Amidst that depression, obviously, there's several bright lights uh, in terms of ideas about where we can go and what we can do, uh, given kind of the changes in terms of interest rates, in terms of global uh, conflict, in terms of the supply chain and how it's impacting real estate. Um, and it's at times like these that I find myself really reaching out to folks that really are looking at the economy as a whole that are not necessarily skin in the game having to invest a portfolio, but are really thinking about what this means and what this means from a broader perspective. And that's why I've been especially fortunate to be able to have several conversations over the last several months with uh, Neil Shearing. He's the group chief economist at Capital Economics. And he has a, a wonderful perspective and he spent some time with us as well at our June meeting in London. Um, about where things are going. And, and, and really, I think Neil has some, some good perspective that might be helpful for us as we battle our own depression and our own fear and uh, continue to soldier forward. So thank you, Neil, so much for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Gunnar. Delighted to be here. So why don't we just start with uh, the global economy? Why not? Let's just start big. And uh, you and your colleagues talk a lot about what you call the fracturing of the global economy. And we keep talking about how Bretton Woods seems to be thrown out uh, with the bathwater and what it replaces it, if that's the case. Or if it's a fracturing, how do we adjust ourselves? You're right. I mean, there's, there's two things going on in the global economy right now. One is a cyclical slowdown slash recession. I think the global economy is going to be in a recession by the early parts of next year. It will be a relatively mild recession in the US. There will be a somewhat deeper recession in Europe, I think. That's all a cyclical response, in principally to higher interest rates, but in the case of Europe, higher energy prices, higher import bills, the squeeze on household incomes that comes from that. that. Uh, but there's something else playing out in the background too, which is that the kind of global order that framed the world economy over the past 30 years is starting to fray. If you cast your mind back to the late 80s, the end of the Cold War, the Washington Consensus, the so-called Washington Consensus, was the dominant uh, framework for thinking. It emphasized openness, liberalization, and really that meant that uh, the response to the, the, the fall of the Cold War was to kind of bring those countries in. Those countries should liberalize their markets, they should open up, but the US and others brought those countries into the, into the global fold. Obviously, that culminated with the accession of China to the WTO in the early 2000s. And, and we saw this rapid period of globalization. Uh, and by and large, that worked out well for most economies at a macro level, but clearly there were some losers. And we saw some of that start to play out in the 2016 
US presidential election. We saw some of that fallout in the in the 2016 vote for Brexit in the UK too. Um, but I think that there's a, there's also a, 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 over and above that a sense that throughout the throughout the, the 1990s and 2000s, the dominant strain of thinking was that we bring China, we bring others into the global fold, and they will become strategic partners to the US and the West. They become allies. Uh, they become more like us, effectively liberal market economies. Um, and clearly, that's not been the case. What has happened instead is that they have become strategic rivals. Um, China has not become more liberal in its economy. If anything, it's become more centralized, it's certainly become more centralized and authoritarian in terms of its politics. So the, the strain of thinking that emphasized openness and liberalization and globalization as a way of bringing these countries into the fold and effectively making uh, or trying to, to, to make countries like Russia and China be a bit more like the West, that is out. Geopolitics is back as a force. Um, China is viewed increasingly as a strategic rival. Trump was uh, a symptom of, of, of all of these forces rather than a cause. Um, and this is going to be, I think, the dominant theme that runs through the global economy for the next 10 or 20 years, which is the fracturing of the global economy. Having been through this period of integration, we get fracturing, uh, where the world splits into two blocks, US-aligned blocks and China-aligned blocks. Um, so we've got to get through a cyclical slowdown and a recession in the next six to 12 months, and it's going to feel pretty grim in, in large parts of the global economy. But over and above that, there are these much bigger forces playing out that I think are going to manifest themselves in the world fracturing into these two, two blocks. And that's going to, going to be, I think, the dominant theme for the next decade or so. Well, it, one of the things that fascinates me, and I'd love your, your thoughts on this, as part of that, that opening up and that global economy and, and, and Russia and China theoretically being a part of this global arrangement, was that we had an unprecedented labor arbitrage and we were able to inexpensively move goods and services around the globe. And as a consequence, it was an incredible deflationary force uh, throughout the global economy. And it seems that it's interesting to me that inflation is rising. Certainly we have a real crisis that prompted it, but at the same time, it seems like we have a reduction of that deflationary force of inexpensive labor found in less developed uh, economies. Do you see that as we fracture, as we try to, to move through this new era, um, do you see any other deflationary force coming back in to help us kind of moderate what's happening right now? Or do you think this this period of inflation is is perhaps something that, that's going to last longer than, than, than a passing fad, if you will, of the last year or so? Well, that's a big question. Um, and I think that, I mean, I think the short answer is that I suspect that just as we have been surprised by how quickly inflation has increased over the past 12, 18 months. It's possible, I think, that over the next 12, 18 months, we could be surprised by how quickly it falls back. Um, possible, maybe not likely, but I think that that's a that's a risk that I don't think enough in the market, enough people in the markets are talking about. We're seeing evidence of goods deflation now in, in, in global goods markets, shipping costs of collapsing, supplier delivery times having really, really lengthened when we had these bottlenecks and now collapsing too, they're, they're shrinking. Um, so there's lots of evidence of um, disinflation and deflation now in goods markets, less so in services and labor markets. That's going to be the, the key thing to follow. Um, but really your question about fracturing and inflation in the context of the period of very low and stable inflation that came alongside globalization, I think is a, a critical one for the next 
10 to 20 years. Uh, I think there's a couple of points to make here. One is that globalization certainly helped um, the period of low inflation in the 1990s and 2000. It was a, a significant factor in, in contributing to, the, to that low inflation, but it wasn't the only one. Mm-hmm. There was independent central banks, there was inflation targeting, uh, the Volcker of shock of the early 80s, getting on top of inflation, squeezing it out of the system, liberalizing labor markets, decline of trade union power, workers bargaining, liberalization of product markets too. All of those things, I think, contributed to the disinflationary uh, environment of the the 90s and and 2000s. So I think it'd be wrong to to kind of lay all of the credit for low inflation at globalization's door. Mm -hmm. That's the first point. The second point is to the extent that that fracturing now ushers in a period of higher inflation, I think it's important to think about the different forms of fracturing that could take place. Uh, In order for us to see uh, a period of much higher, structurally higher inflation caused by a fracturing of the global economy, we would need to see a huge reorientation of global supply chains, Mm -hmm. massive widespread reshoring of production to domestic markets, or for that matter, to, to third party markets, but in a way that, that elevates business costs. Um, and that needs to happen on a wide scale. And I don't think that's going to happen, if I'm, if I'm honest. I think if we wind the clock forward 10, 15 years, the US is still going to be buying toys from China. Mm-hmm. It's still going to be importing furniture from China. All these consumer goods, I, st- I think they're still going to be made in China. What's not going to happen is that uh, your latest kind of mobile phone slash computer that you carry around in your pocket is unlikely to be made in China. I suspect that will be, production of that item is likely to be moved to a a country that aligns with the US. I don't think anything's going back to the US, by the way. Foxconn plant in Wisconsin, look where that's gone. That's that's emblematic of the, the challenges of reshoring. But it's possible that we get iPhones produced in India or Mexico or Vietnam or somewhere that's a bit more aligned to the US. Uh, And other technological goods and other security goods and anything anything with a kind of defense, security, technological element to it. I think that that's where we might get um, fracturing starting to come to bear on where those goods are produced. Pharmaceuticals might be another one too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Semiconductors, it's fascinating to see what happens there. Um, so I, my, my sense is that we don't, we're not going to see a wholesale kind of reordering of global supply chains. It's going to happen in areas that governments believe to be the most politically and geopolitically sensitive. And the reason for that is because it's politics and geopolitics that's driving this. It's right. not market forces. This is a government decision. And, and frankly, it's dumb politics to say we're going to inflate the price of every consumer good by, by 100% because we're going to move the production of that to another country when there's no kind of good political reason for doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't think we see a big reordering of these global supply chains. It happens in selected parts of the global supply chain. And for that reason, I don't think it's going to be a hugely inflationary process. It might be at the margin, but you know, we, we've learned that inflation is slightly mysterious, moves in mysterious ways. It, it seems that every time we think there's a single force driving inflation, we, we prove to be wrong because it is a, it's, it's a very macro uh, force, it seems to me, in terms of inflationary moves. You know, a lot of times um, we talk about this golden age of the last 20 or 30 years uh, of lower inflation and, and globalization and, and, and uh, investment and, and strong central banks and everything else as being a period of no inflation. And yet at the same time, 
we saw significant asset inflation, uh, especially in property markets. Uh, and when you think about what's happened for housing in a lot of Western economies, the U.S. and, and, and England included, uh, we've seen uh, you know a real ramp up in in uh, values for for residential. Uh, to the point that we're, we have, uh, we're, we're finding ourselves in a housing crisis, if you will, in terms of there's not enough supply uh, for the demand that's there, especially affordable housing. Um, how do you think this is going to play out? Because certainly interest rates have been a big part of that ramp up. Uh, and as, as interest rates come up, so do the values of real estate theoretically go down. And yet the supply demand characteristics would suggest that we're going to have some upward forces in terms of what the values are on that that scarce resource, which is housing. So how do you think that's going to play out? It, it seems to me to be a very complicated model and one that we can't just simply say interest rates up, therefore values down. It's going to be a little bit more nuanced than that. So could you give some picture around that? Well, I think the, the one point to make is that I mean, you, you're, you're right. The observa- your, your observation is correct. L- era of low inflation everywhere apart from asset prices. Uh, um, and I think those two things are directly related um, because because inflation was so low, consumer price inflation was so low, that meant that central banks essentially had to set interest rates at very low levels in order to keep inflation at their even their 2% targets for long periods of time. Right. Uh, and those low interest rates uh, in nominal terms and in negative in, in real terms meant that asset prices, encouraged asset price appreciation, low low nominal rates, negative real rates, asset prices go up. So I think in a very direct sense, the, the low level or low rate of consumer price inflation is has a direct counterpart in the very rapid appreciation of asset prices, and it works through the interest rate channel. Uh, and you're correct that that is, now, um, that is now starting to reverse. And I think what's happening in housing markets today, although it looks alarming, it's kind of uh, invoked comparisons with 2008. I think actually it's a really very different set of scenarios, mm-hmm. uh, scenarios here, um, in circumstances rather. In 2008, it was principally about a rapid expansion of credit, often at relatively dubious standards, teaser rates and all of that, right. very, very high loan to value ratios, banks being relatively inadequately capitalized. Um, Whereas a lot of that's gone now. Right. We're not in a debt crisis in the same way we were before. Exactly. Yeah. Banks are in much better shape. They're, they're much more cautious in the way that they lend. Loan-to-value ratios are higher. Teaser rates have ended. Bank stress tests by central banks are much tougher. Um, so this time around, the, the rally in house prices from kind of over the last couple of years has all been about low interest rates, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you can you know, we've got various charts of capital economics proving this point, but it's all basically an affordability question. Um, and so if rates go up, then affordability goes down, and effective demand for housing starts to diminish too. Um, and that's what I think we're going to see continue to play through over the course of the next twelve months or so. I'm afraid that I think the the um, the residential housing sectors in in the US and in Europe are going to be some of the weakest parts of of, the, of these economies. Um, then you get to the structural question that you're talking about, which is about this imbalance between demand and supply, um, which as an economist is always a slightly strange way of thinking about things because there's never an imbalance between demand and supply. That's what prices are there right. to do. They equilibrate demand and supply. 
the point being that they've been, the combination of restricted supply and low interest rates have equilibrated the market at a very high level. It means market clears at a high level of prices. Right. Um, rates go up, then that diminishes demand. The, the key question in my mind is what happens on the supply side? Um, now, there's a long tradition of every government, particularly this side of the pond uh, in Europe, of promising uh, that they're going to do something about house building to stimulate the supply of housing, particularly affordable housing. Uh, and this gets them elected, and then they get into government, and they realize it's much more difficult to do in practice. They come against the housing lobby. There's lots of vested interests. Um, they lose one or two by-elections in the case of the UK government, and suddenly they get um, cold feet about um, some of the, the kind of planning reforms that, that, that are proposed in order to, to stimulate the supply of housing. Mm-hmm. So um, housing supply is a real issue. It's a it, it's a, it's a political issue. It's an economic issue as well. I think if you were to be able to rekindle housing supply, you would deal with a whole load of other um, problems in that, that are dogging um, advanced economies, low investment rates, inequality, and so on and so forth. Actually grasping the problem and doing something about it is far more difficult in practice. So I, I remain to be convinced that we will see... Um, that we'll see any kind of meaningful change there. Yeah. But it would be, if we were, then if we were to do so, then it would be something that would make me considerably more bullish about the future. Well, it certainly feels like a reset right now that we have had this kind of acceleration of values at, of asset prices for some time now. And uh, I think expectations are now being downgraded from that continuing to uh, perhaps even having a little bit of drop uh, in the in the next several months. But I, I think one of the problems with supply, it comes right back to that that global supply chain again. Uh, both from a standpoint of of materials and labor, in addition to you know zoning and code practices from the 19th century that seem to always seem to get in everyone's way of creating affordable housing, um, but I, I think we're still waiting for that uh, those parts of the supply chain to um, normalize themselves, if you will. Um, every time I speak to a major developer, um, they're all worried about where is their next supply of sheetrock coming from. I mean, some things that are just very basic that are holding up or appliances or steel or, you know, everything else on top of the fact that with ESG, we're concerned about concrete. So um, all those things are, are contributing to uh, rising costs just to create more supply, which is obviously what the market is supposed to do is demand rises and price rise. Then there's going to be creation of more supply, but we're pretty constrained by other forces as well. Do you see, I mean, if you go your, if you take some of your thinking and your modeling beyond the next year or so of adjustment on a more longer term basis, how do you see that evening out? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think that in the near term, recessions will deal with supply constraints because demand will diminish and those constraints will start to ease. And we're starting to see some evidence of that. You're right, there are still pockets of um, of, uh, of, of supply restrictions and constraints. We're, um, we're having some renovations done at home at the moment. My anecdotal evidence is uh, from the, the kind of from the south of England is that they're still very real when it comes to some home renovations that you have to wait weeks and months for for tiles to arrive in a bathroom, for example. Um, so I think that we're still working through that, and that's related to the, the huge spikes in demand that we saw during the pandemic for various goods and, and, and disruptions on the supply side too. Now, cast the, cast the clock beyond the kind of the next six, 12 months in this cyclical downturn, where do we go on the supply side? There's a key question to, to my mind about how supply chains are kind of um, where they're located, and we, we talked about that earlier. But there's also a question about how they're configured in the context of the pandemic. 
Uh, and whether or not we start to put greater weight on resilience um, as opposed to profitability, frankly. Um, you know, the, the, the mantra over the last 20 to 30 years has been just in time. Lean supply chains, just in time, maximize margins, maximize corporate profits. And it worked very well up until the point that we had several shocks all in a row. Global financial crisis, we got through that just about. Then you had the pandemic, many more constraints. Then you've had the war in Ukraine, huge problems in Europe's energy markets. Um, and it's exposed the lack of resilience in, in, in global supply chains and, and regional supply chains too. Um, so I wonder whether the, um, the, there's, there's a kind of moment of reckoning coming uh, once the kind of dust settles on this cyclical downturn, which is there's a conversation to be had about how do we value just in time versus just in case? How do we value lean, mar lean supply chains that improve margins versus resilient supply chains that push against margins but, but, but offer you greater kind of protection against unforeseen shocks? It seems to me as well that the, the current... Um crisis or shock or however you want to characterize the period that we're going through right now also seems to be presaging some more fundamental shifts or changes in terms of how some of these markets work. Certainly the energy shock that is is being propelled to a certain extent by the conflict in Ukraine, but is also something that we've all known that we had to deal with. I, I think you know Germany for years has known and has talked about, gee, we are really reliant on Russian gas and oil to make our economy work. We need to change that, but gee, it's really hard to change it as long as it's so inexpensive. So as we enter an era where perhaps some of these things are not as reliable as they were before, it may push us into changes that we always knew had to happen. Similarly, in the real estate markets, if you think about uh, office, which is a category now that you know it was the darling of every institutional investor for forever, and over the last 10 years, not just during the crisis, that has been questioned in terms of you know office, how it's being configured, how much of it there is. And there's serious talk now about uh, that I don't think was here six months ago around, gee, we have a lot of B and C office that we could actually do different things with. And it's almost forcing us to rethink how we've configured the built environment. And it's only because of crisis that we're able to do it. If things were still humming along, maybe not as great as they were 10 years ago, but humming along, I doubt we would have changed. Do you see that process going perhaps in a more positive direction in terms of us being propelled to changes that we need to make? I think it's possible. Look, um, I, I think the, my, my only observation is I think the dust is yet to fully settle on the effects of the pandemic. Right. Uh, I mean, you mentioned that the conversation has shifted over the past six months, um, and I think you're right. Um, but if you, it, it's, it was only six months ago that I remember traveling to the US for the first time since the pandemic, seeing clients Things were just starting to open up, if you remember, kind of March and April time last year. And you think about how, and people slowly getting back into the office and it's happening to different extents in different parts of the country. The same was true in Europe. And now it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's taken off in a, in a, in a way that, I, frankly, I hadn't expected. I hadn't expected us to, to move back to, to, to office environments quite as quickly as we, we had done. So I think we're still starting to see, we're still, we're still seeing the full effects of the pandemic. Play out and it won't be for a while until the, the kind of dust settles on mm -hmm. on that. But I think when it does, I think you're right. I think it's going to look different. I don't think we're going to go back to a world where we're working five days a week in the office now. Mm -hmm. We can talk about whether it's three days or four days or whether some workers are kind of fully remote and some workers are mostly in the office. 
it's going to be different. Offices are going to have to be reconfigured at the very least to, yeah. to accommodate that. The way that you, you know, work collaboratively, we'll have to kind of to rethink that city centers more fundamentally are going to have to be reconfigured as well because yes. even if it's most people are in the office four days a week that's very different in terms of footfall and demand in city centers from five days a week so Absolutely. i suspect a good deal of space is still going to have to be kind of reconfigured into residential for example so so yeah i still think there's, there's a whole load of structural change coming through yeah i mean even if it's one day a week that w- people are not in the office that's 20 percent of the time that's a significant number and really swings things uh, all over the place not, not just for office but certainly for retail and for every other aspect of these central business districts what i've been observing so far because you do have a lot of very different cities uh some that are more integrated you know work live play all in the same place they seem to be doing better in terms of people going to the office because it's right down the street versus those markets where it's just office um, downtown and people are reluctant to come in if they don't have to sort of thing. So I, I do think there's there's going to be some new winners and new losers here. But to your point, it's going to be different. And, and so that means that I think we need to be ready for some fundamental shifts. Um, and all of these things obviously were going on even before COVID happened. It's just we've we've accelerated it to a great extent. Um, so what are you, um, what are you watching right now? I, I'd love to just kind of look at the, the, the plus and the minus just a little bit to kind of get a sense of things. You said when we were chatting a little bit earlier that, um, it's so depressing. Everyone's so down now, you know, months into this kind of period of rethink, if you will, uh, that you think that actually you might become a little bit more bullish. Oh my goodness. What, what, what are you bullish about in, in an environment of such challenge? <laughs> I know. Uh, look, I think that let, let's be clear: the macro outlook is is pretty grim. It, we're going to have a mild recession in the US. Unemployment is going to go up. We're going to have a deeper recession in the, in Europe. Unemployment is probably going to go up there too, by probably a greater amount. China is a um, is heading into really troubled times. I think partly because of extric- extricating itself from zero COVID, but also because of significant property downturns and the f- fact that the global goods boom has ended and that's benefited Chinese exporters. That's now unwinding. So you've got the three major blocks of the global economy really struggling, I think, over the next six to nine months. So I think it's going to be a pretty bleak macro outlook. I think corporate earnings are going to come under pressure. I think there's perhaps still a bit of another leg down in asset prices to, to come. I think housing markets are going to be a particular weak spot in, in all of those in all of those economies. So that's the gloom. Um, my Where does my if I was trying to give you a glass half full um, story, where would it be? I think one of it, one aspect of this is that um, the time when you you should be as an investor, you should be most concerned is when everyone else is sanguine and you can see kind of storm clouds, the proverbial storm clouds on the horizon. And that it felt to me like we were in that situation about about this time last year. Um, we were then talking about uh, the capital economics. The consensus on global economic growth and U.S. growth and European growth being too optimistic. Uh, that was even before the war in Ukraine and the effect on on global commodity prices. That then happens. That accelerates that downturn. Um, we we're talking about problems in China too, but none of this was really in the markets. Now it's pretty clear that that a lot of it's in the markets. I suspect there's still a bit more kind of compression of earnings to come through, and that might weigh a bit on stock markets. But you know, by and large, you know. Every man and his dog is talking about inflation, talking about rate rises, talking about housing weakness. Um, so the glass half full 
story is that, yeah, it's going to be pretty grim over the next six, nine, 12 months. But a lot of that's now in the market in a way that it wasn't six or 12 months ago. Mm -hmm. Um, The second, uh, and this is the, if you want to be really optimistic, if you want to get really giddy here, is that maybe inflation after all is transitory. Um, Now, I wouldn't go to town on this argument just yet. But I do think there's a real sense in which inflation, the inflation outlook in six to nine months is going to look markedly different to what it does today. Um, I think we're going to get headline rates of inflation falling quite sharply just because energy and food inflation is going to tend to zero because the, the shocks of this year are going to come out of the annual comparison. I think the economic downturn is going to cause labor markets to um, loosen up and wage pressures to ease. That in turn will feed through to, to weaker core inflation. I think that, that would happen particularly in the US because the labor market there's bit more liberalized and have some of the supply constraints that we have here in the UK and in, in other parts of Europe. Um, so I think you can start to paint a picture where the inflation outlook becomes, certainly in the US, becomes a bit less troubling. Now, inflation will fall. We don't quite, our old models for thinking about inflation don't work. I think it's fair. We should, we should kind of acknowledge that. Yeah. So as economists, um, so knowing exactly how far it falls, where it settles, it's incredibly difficult. It's equally difficult for central banks to do that. Um, but I just have this sense that six to nine months' time, you know, if we were to do this podcast, in fact, let's record this podcast in 12 months' time, and I suspect the outlook for inflation is going to be somewhat different at that point. I, I would suspect so. I mean, in, in some ways, it has to, whether it goes up or goes down. It's going to be different, probably, uh, given uh, uh, the, the pace of change over the last several months. Is there anything that you think people are missing right now uh, that perhaps we should be paying closer attention to in terms of some of the forces out there and how they might be impacting uh, decisions around real estate portfolios. What do you think people just aren't getting right? Well, look, I think what one aspect is um, what's happening to interest rates and what effect that has on asset prices and financial markets. One of the lessons from the gilt market crisis here in the UK was that um, things tend to break when interest rates move up very quickly. Uh, and we have been through the most aggressive period of monetary tightening mm-hmm. um, since the early 1980s, if you look just the change in in, in interest rates um, in, in advanced economies. So look, it's possible that there's some risks out there um, lurking in the financial sector. We, you know, we spoke earlier about the banking sector being better capitalized compared with 2008. So I don't think we're going to get another Lehman's crisis or banking crisis. But it's possible that in the shadow banks, there are some problems lurking in asset managers or insurance markets or private equity or um, any any basically any market where liquids are uh, assets are illiquid and funds could get redemptions and they can't dispose of their assets. That could that could be a, a risk. Uh, problem, of course, is that shadow banks are by definition very shadowy mm-hmm. and difficult to um, to to get a, gr- a, a grip on. That's so that that's one area that I think um, pay. Uh, mm-hmm. We should pay, be paying close, very close attention to, and, and it seems very similar in a way when when you think about you know as we're approaching a, a crisis in terms of energy, and at first you go well, okay, I'm it's going to cost more money for me to heat my place or to fuel my car, but what people don't also realize is that every aspect of the economy is impacted by oil. It's it's what drives our economy, but you could say the same thing about. Uh, debt and capital uh, coming through the banking system, whether it's shadow or regular, is that it impacts every other price. It impacts every other 
activity that we do. And I think to a certain extent, we, we think just that immediate, oh, interest rates are up, therefore it's going to be harder for me to get a loan for a piece of property. But actually, it also means that every other aspect of the economy is affected as well. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, that reflects a broader point. Um, my, my, my second thing that I think we're slightly missing is that we've been through a period where um, everything's been relatively benign. It may not have felt like it was benign. We've been through the biggest kind of financial crisis since the Great Depression in 2008 and then the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis. Right. Um, but I think there's a, there's a very real sense in which the, the global economy and financial system is a bit more vulnerable now. Uh, the era of low inflation and very low slash negative real interest rates is behind us. Um, the geopolitical backdrop, as we've spoken about, is much more um, vulnerable, volatile, fragile now. Um, we've got an election in the US in 2024. Yet we don't know how that's going to play out, but it's conceivable that the the domestic political outlook is going to become more polarized. Um, so the, the, we've been through a period where global growth has been pretty good over the last th three decades. Inflation has been low. Monetary policy has been accommodative. Um, nations, by and large, have integrated and cooperated, whereas I think now we're shifting to an environment where um, it's a lot of those kind of fundamental forces are starting to, to fray a bit in a, in a way that... Um, means that there's going to be greater kind of tail risks in, in the global economy. Well, I mean, uh, I, I guess this is the time where where we prove our mettle <laughs> or not uh, as we go through this period of, of increased volatility. Uh, and I do frankly find it refreshing anytime someone, when they talk about the future, is is able to speak as an economist should, which is, okay, these are the possibilities. This is where, what we have, but obviously we cannot know. Um, and I think that's something that we're having to relearn again, uh, especially after the last year of, of events as we go forward, where everything we thought we knew is perhaps shifting on us and, and we have to change where we're going. Um, if you were out there as an investor right now, what do you think, uh, especially when it comes to uh, commercial property, what do you think your emphasis would be in terms of how you would how would you steer your ship um, as an investor? Well, look, I, I still think we're in for a period where for the next three to six months, there's still a bit of um, adjustments to come in asset prices. Um, I think most of the incre increases in interest rates are now probably priced into the bond market. So there might be some value in, in, in bond markets, but I think in some property markets, um, capital values may have to come down. I think in some equity markets and REITs markets that, that we might see some price compression there too. So I think I'll be keeping my powder dry for, for a while yet. But then by the time we get into kind of into 2023 and a bit bit, bit further into next year, then I think there's some interesting opportunities. Um, a lot of the money returns are made in the early stages of, of investment cycles. So I think you know, being nimble and being able to deploy capital you know, as you start to see the cycle turn is, is going to be the key. Well, I, I, I think that's good advice. Keep keep your powder dry and be ready to move when the moment uh, presents itself. It just makes total sense. Well, thank you, Neil, for spending a little bit of time with us on the AFAR podcast. We've been speaking with uh, Neil Shearing. He's the group chief economist at Capital Economics. Uh, thank you so much. I look forward to recording this podcast in a year and see where things are, especially when it comes to inflation. Um, but thank you for spending time with us on the AFAR podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. 
AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.